This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Today we will be discussing the nature and future of the conflict in Afghanistan. As of today, the 15th of June, there is a ceasefire between the Afghan government forces and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Why that is important is because this has never happened in the last 17 years of the conflict at the end of the Afghan war in 2001. After being defeated in 2001 at the hands of the American and NATO forces, the Taliban has come back with a lot more power and vigor and has and is in control of a great deal of territory in Afghanistan today. What happens in Afghanistan has direct and indirect implications for India's national security and that is why we are discussing the Afghan conflict today. Um, to discuss the conflict in Afghanistan and the future of the conflict in Afghanistan, we have today with us Ambassador Vivek Karju. Ambassador Vivek Karju was India's ambassador to Afghanistan, Thailand and Myanmar. Um, he is today a prolific writer and a well-known commentator on strategic issues and a regular in several attractive forums between India and Pakistan, India and Afghanistan and such related attractive forums. Ambassador Karju, welcome to the National Security Conversation. Um, Karju sir, let me start by asking about this particular ceasefire that has just been announced between the Taliban in Afghanistan and the uh, Afghan government forces. Uh, do you think this is something very special? Uh, the reason why I'm asking this is because uh, for the last 17 years this has not really happened. Um, can we say that this is probably the beginning of a um, new reconciliation process uh, between the Afghan government and the Taliban forces in Afghanistan? That would be premature. But certainly it is something that needs to be observed and monitored. The Afghan Taliban, as they exist today, are not a cohesive group. There is a mainstream group, and that is the group that has announced the ceasefire. But it's noteworthy that it's only with respect to the Afghan forces, not with respect to foreign forces. That's correct. Also, uh, this, I read today that the splinter group, led by Mullah Rasool, has also said that they will not attack government installations. So that's also an interesting development. How long they will adhere to their commitment remains to be seen. It also, the ceasefire to my mind also shows that uh, the Pakistanis are under pressure. Because while the Pakistanis maintain that the Afghan Taliban don't listen to them, and that Hebatullah and his group takes decisions on their own. The fact is that there is an inextricable linkage between the two. Mm. So, uh, we now need to see whether the Pakistanis will push the Afghan Taliban further so that there can be negotiations between them and the Afghan government. That is a question mark and I am somewhat pessimistic about that. 
Kanju sir, that's, that's an interesting argument because you are saying that uh, the Pakistanis may be under pressure today and they may have therefore prompted the Afghan Taliban in order to negotiate with the Afghan government. Why are the Pakistanis... No, for the ceasefire. For the ceasefire. At Fine. the moment, it's only a ceasefire. Right. But why are the Pakistanis under pressure? Let's go back to August 21 of last year when Trump, after a lot of deliberations, announced his uh, Afghanistan and South Asia policy. And in that policy, he was quite categorical that uh, Pakistan must close down the sanctuaries, safe havens, and also promote peace by bringing the Afghan Taliban to the table. Thereafter, if you recollect, I think it was on New Year's Day or perhaps New Year's Eve uh, that he tweeted uh, and uh, basically uh, in his statement of August 21 and in his tweets, he called Pakistan, that called out Pakistan and said that they were being duplicitous. The Pakistanis, I think, came under a fair deal of pressure. And, but I, and I've written about this, that Trump's policy at the end of the day is not very different uh, from the policy of his predecessors in that it recognizes the crucial position of Pakistan for peacemaking in Afghanistan. The slight difference is that he is pursuing or his officials are pursuing this policy with greater vigor. So I think the Bajwa, because this actually is being handled by Bajwa and the generals, they are wanting to tell the Americans that they are not absolutely obdurate and uh, they are willing to play ball to an extent. But at the same time, uh, Ambassador Karju, um, the Americans may be putting the Pakistani generals under pressure, but at the same time, you have the Russians or talking to the Pakistanis and the Taliban, you have the Chinese talking to the Taliban and, and Chinese and the, and the Pakistanis have a certain relationship. Um, so I thought the feeling in Pakistan is that of certain triumphalism that, hey, Taliban is gaining ground in Afghanistan and therefore our grand strategy vis-a-vis Afghanistan is probably bearing fruit at the end of the day. Um, but you are, you are making a very counterintuitive sort of argument. No. There. That may be true in respect of Afghanistan. Yes. Uh, the Russians have given the Taliban an opening. I'm not sure to what extent the Chinese have given them that same kind of opening. But certainly, uh, there is a, a certain linkage between policies of the Russians, the Pakistanis and the Chinese. But let us never underestimate American clout. It extends beyond Afghanistan. It, it's direct on Pakistan. It's also, for example, the FATF, that's coming up. So the Pakistani generals have to show that they are being good boys. And one of the ways, and I should have mentioned this earlier, one of the ways is to show that at least they are pushing the Afghan Taliban in the right direction. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting Pakistani angle to what is happening today in Afghanistan. Um, so there's always a Pakistani angle sure. to whatever happens in Afghanistan sure, sure. in this respect. Uh, but let me ask you a different question, which is um, the Taliban is on the uh, ascendancy today. Um, after having gained so much more control of Afghan territory today, increasingly from 2001, 
why would the Taliban, an insurgent group, uh, speak to the government when it is in a position of strength? Look, uh, that state still hasn't reached. And the Afghan Taliban have given no indication as yet that they are willing to talk to the Afghan government. It's only a ceasefire at the moment. And that is for three days, for the Eid. So let us not jump to conclusions. Uh, as of now, the Afghan Taliban have maintained their position that foreign fighters or that foreign occupation forces, as they call them, must leave. That position hasn't changed. Second, the Taliban are not the only game in town now. There is the ISIS too in its avatar in, in Afghanistan. And that dynamic needs to be watched also. Let's shift gears a bit. Um, what, in your opinion, explains the American failure in Afghanistan? Um, since 2001, for example, the Americans have lost 2,300 lives in Afghanistan. And at the same time, the Americans have spent billions of dollars on civilian and military aid, besides providing over 30 billion assistance in, to Pakistan. Still, the Taliban has not um, been defeated. It's on, it's on, it's on the ascendancy. Um, what explains the, the, the American failure to control Taliban, to control Pakistan and stabilize Afghanistan? We've got to go back to the American operation in 2001. And in fact, even back even further. I was in New York in 1996, November of 96, when the United Nations and Boutros Ghali was mm -hmm. the Secretary General, held a meeting and it was the first meeting on Afghanistan of countries with interest and influence in Afghanistan. And India was invited. So I was there in that capacity as part of an Indian team. And I recollect well that the American Assistant Secretary of State, Robin Raffle, mm -hmm. praising the Taliban. It's on, you can Google it, you'll find. She said that they are an authentic Afghan group. Now, the Americans had no problems with the Taliban per se. The Americans were a little embarrassed when the Taliban captured Kabul and then they showed their approaches towards on gender issues uh, and uh, the kind of punishment regime, criminal justice regime that they were following. But per se, they had no problems with the Taliban. The problems arose when Osama bin Laden came to Afghanistan. And he too came in 96, if I recollect correctly, in July of 96, he had come there. And a nexus developed between Osama bin Laden and the Taliban. Then the Americans kept pressuring the, uh, the Taliban to deliver Osama. They kept pressuring Afghans, uh, the Pakistanis too. And this happened after 1998. And after 9-11, it's well known that uh, they tried everything to sever the connection between Mullah Umar and Osama bin Laden. But that didn't happen. Post the Taliban being pushed out of Afghanistan and into Pakistan, the Americans struck what I believe is a Faustian bargain 
with the Pakistanis. And that the elements of that bargain was... At what point of time? I'm talking of late 2001-2002. At this stage, the bargain was simple to my mind. And it was that the Pakistanis would deliver Al-Qaeda elements. And they did. I think all told they delivered about 600 or perhaps more Al-Qaeda elements. And they got a huge amount of money for that. But as part of the bargain, the Americans went easy on the Taliban. And that crucial period was availed of by the Pakistanis to keep the Taliban going. So the Taliban recouped, the Taliban regrouped, they became energized. And by 2003, late 2003, they had started the, crossing the Duran line into Afghan territory. And thereafter, all this was sustained. So the real difficulty with the Americans, to which they still haven't found an answer, is how to deal with the Pakistanis. Because as long as there is a contaminant, and you are not going to the source of the contaminant, you are only tre treating the symptom, you can't really cure the disease. So for that, to cure the disease, they had to cross the Durant to get the Pakistanis under control. And that they've never succeeded in doing. I had thought once Trump had announced his policy, and the Pakistanis too were very scared initially, <coughs> that the Americans now meant business. That hasn't happened. Ambassador Karcho, since we are discussing Pakistan now, do you think that Pakistan has at least some legitimate interest in Afghanistan, given the fact that even the Taliban never accepted the Durand line. Uh, the, the Pashtuns have in the past and even today talk about Pashtunistan, uh, which Pakistan perceives as a major national security threat. And there are millions of Afghan refugees living in Pakistan. Um, so they, it's, it's a drain on Pakistani economy, at least according to the Pakistanis. So given, given this sort of background and scenario, do you think Pakistan has certain legitimate national security interests vis-a-vis Afghanistan at all? I think all neighbors have interests in neighboring countries. So that is a, a given. The problem is that the Pakistanis want to severely influence Afghanistan, especially with regard to its India policy. And no Afghan government is willing to hand that over to them. And that would not come within the ambit of legitimate interest. Ghani was the first Afghan leader who went to the extent of telling the Pakistanis that he was willing to downgrade Afghanistan's relationship with India. But he too was unwilling to allow them to control that policy. No Afghan leader can allow them to do so. And that is the real problem in Afghan-Pakistan relations. So that is the real issue. And that is not, and the Americans uh, know this. So the Americans have tried everything. But they know that uh, this is the real problem in Afghanistan. So what did you say to the Pakistani argument that um, India has been engaged in certain activities in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, 
which will be uh, which will lead pakistan towards a sort of certain nutcracker situation you have india on the one side you have uh, afghanistan on the one side and these are two um, countries that are out there to do things vis-a-vis -vis pakistan so how do you sort of respond you know factually you've been you, you've been the ambassador I in think, afghanistan i think these are highly exaggerated ideas do the afghans have the wherewithal to really cause any security difficulties to Pakistan. No, the accusation is about India. No, no. But do you think we can really trouble, even if we wanted to, really trouble the Pakistanis via Afghanistan? No. I think these are in a projection of what they try to do. Now, they can do it and they've been doing it. All this infiltration business, etc. A, because of the Tanzims they've nurtured. And B, there is a contiguity between India and, and Pakistan. If you talk to reasonable Pakistanis, they too accept. So, this is, these fears are completely misplaced. And there has been not much evidence put on There's the table. There's no evidence at all. What is the evidence? What what is the future of um, Taliban in Afghanistan? Will it take in your in your sort of assessment? Will it take over Afghanistan? Will it be part of a certain coalition government in Afghanistan in the days to come? Given the fact that the Taliban at the end of the day are the locals, I mean some of them do of course go from Pakistan, but most of them are basically local. So, do you foresee a future wherein uh, the Taliban is completely in control or? part of uh, the government in Afghanistan and which one is preferable? I'm asking which one is preferable and I'm asking this because the, the Taliban strength at this point of time is at least conservatively putting it 60,000 uh, people um, and as of 2017 October about 56% of the country's districts were under the Afghan government control or influence 30% were contested and 14% were under insurgent control and that is sort of increasing. So. You can't wish away this force that is there. So what kind of a political uh, arrangement is there likely to be in the days to come? Look, as long as the sanctuaries are there in Pakistan, so which actually means there's a hinterland to which they can grow, uh, to which they can go, uh, it would be very difficult to control the Taliban. Second, there are difficulties in Kabul. They are not hidden from anyone. I think uh, Kabul has not been able to settle its own affairs fully. That has not happened even during the time of Karzai. Mm -hmm. The Ghani Abdullah arrangement uh, has, has continued. Surprisingly, it's continued. But there are cracks within it. So, there are difficulties. The as long as there are there is the American presence, I do not see uh, the Taliban being in a position to overrun Afghanistan. Right. Second, will they take part in an Afghan peacemaking effort so that there can be a power sharing arrangement? There, if you recollect, in his peace offer, I think it was made in February, if I'm not mistaken, Ghani had said 
that he was even willing to open up the question of the nature of the Afghan constitution. That could also be talked about, which was surprising, but it was so. The difficulty I see is that the Taliban have to make a transition from their complete ideological and theological commitment to what they conceive of as an Islamic state into a modern state, a modern state in the Afghan context. I have seen no evidences yet that the Taliban are willing to make that transition or leave alone having have made that transition. But yes, they now say that their political office is alleged, can be authorized to negotiate, etc. But the negotiation is still with the Americans. So the inference is that they want international legitimacy which is something which has never been given to them. From a strategic point of view, uh, what implications will a Taliban government or Taliban joining a government in Afghanistan have on India's national security? You've seen these people firsthand. You were there in, um, in, in Kandahar when the negoti negotiations were going on after the hijack of ICA-214. Um, so, in your opinion, um, you, you are saying that they haven't changed much. That is true. Um, but if there is no choice, if they join part of, if they join the government, um, would India or should India say that we will not deal with them at all? I what have, implications? I have, have been on years? record for over a year as saying that India should have no difficulty in establishing contact with the Taliban. That doesn't mean that we approve of their ideology or theology, that uh, doesn't mean that we want them to uh, be part of a power-sharing agreement, but that's for the Afghans to decide. But it does mean that just as the uh, other major powers of the world have contacts with the Taliban, we too have contacts with them. There's nothing beyond that. That's the way the diplomatic game is played. Uh, I, for one, feel that in the long run, any government in Kabul, given the history of Pakistan-Afghan relations, would have difficulties with Pakistan. I am fortified in this view because of all that has taken place over the last 70 years. Even the Mujahideen groups, had certain very strong positions about India's, uh, India's positions uh, during the Soviet presence in Afghanistan. But after 1992, when they took over power, then we know that they gradually opened up with India. The Northern Alliance, for example. The Northern Alliance had grave reservations about our so-called role during approaches or attitudes during the Afghan Jihad. But they too, then we, we had a very good relationship with them. We recognized them as did the rest of the world except for three countries as the legitimate government. They had the UN seat. So, uh, in the long run, I am not worried. The question is of a short 
period. And the real problem is what kind of a gov- what kind of a government will it be for Afghans? Afghanistan has changed. It has changed sure. quite substantially. And uh, should we have a government with an, an ideology which I think was once described as medieval malevolence? There are all kinds of countries in the world. Beyond the point, India as a was there state. any country of the kind that uh, like the Taliban, any regime like the Taliban it, it, regime. It went to the extreme, but there are, so, there are of lesser, lesser extreme, there are so, other countries. So, isn't it all, the game isn't it all in the, in, in the nature of the regime to how, how far do they go? So, when you say India should have contacts with Taliban, are you saying all kinds of Taliban? Or are you making a distinction like uh, a lot of people make the good Taliban versus the bad Taliban and sort of pick and choose? Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying, be that as it may, I don't care, whoever it is, I'll deal with them? What is the distinction between good Taliban and bad Taliban? Uh, the good Taliban and bad Taliban are code words. To my mind, they denote Pakistani approaches where they bash up and bash up brutally those groups, those Tanzims that turn against the Pakistan state and those Tanzims that they use, like the Lashkar, like the Jesh. That distinction is a valid distinction. Otherwise, uh, in the real world, you, you maintain links. That doesn't mean recognition. That doesn't mean that I approve. But yes, in this world, you've got to maintain links. Now, the nature of those links, I'll not go into. If there is a future Taliban government in Afghanistan, should India maintain links with that government or not? If there is a legitimate government in Afghanistan, the earlier Taliban government was not a legitimate government. It didn't have international recognition. If there is a government which is legitimate... You mean elected? ...which has the approval of the Afghan people, today under the Afghan constitution, the only way to have a legitimate government is through elections conducted in Afghanistan by the Afghan uh, authorities as stipulated in the Afghan constitution. That's if much. if yeah. that is so, then we of course we do business with them. Ambassador Kaju, that's too much of an expression. This, this, is, this, is, a, this is a militant group. That, that Am I saying, you, please, you, happy you asked me the question of should India do business with an Afghan government? If I'm Taliban saying, is in power in that government. If that government is a legitimate government, if, for example, the, under the constitution, the Afghan people choose, elect a government, which some can call a Taliban government, what option will you have but to deal with them? Because they will be the constitutional government of Afghanistan. Musharraf, President Musharraf came to power through a coup in Pakistan. India recognized that, 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 that government eventually. That coup was legitimized by the Pakistan judiciary. So, so, if they so once a coup is recognized, is legitimized by the Pakistan judiciary, howsoever, under whatever dubious doctrine they did, but they did so. And that government then received international recognition. Of course, 
there are subtleties. Some states try to bypass this issue by saying they recognize states, they don't recognize governments. So then you've got to eventually deal with such a government. However, in Musharraf was still following not an approach which was completely, com completely haywire of the 7th century as the Taliban did. So there is a distinction there. Some people have made the argument that uh, India probably uh, missed the bus. I mean, Mr. Dullat in his latest book, he says, we missed the bus. We missed out because when Taliban was in power, we refused to recognize them. And then in 2000 or 2002, the argument being that uh, at the end of the day, if there is a government in power in a country, it's better for our national security interests to recognize that, that regime and deal with that regime. Uh, but you would make qualifications to that sort of an argument. Well, since you mentioned 2002, there was no question of, so Mr. Dullat mentioned yeah. 2000. 2000 or he's saying 2000 or 2002, I think probably 2000 is. 2002, uh, the Taliban were out of uh, government. They had been defeated, quote unquote, and they had been pushed into Pakistan. So, I don't know how Mr. Dullat is saying that they should have been recognized in 2002. Uh, as far as 2000 is concerned, yes. But should we have rewarded the Taliban for their role in the Kandahar hijack? Let us not forget that at that stage, there were only three countries in the world that had recognized the Taliban as the legitimate government. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And I think there's uh, the two Arab countries regretted their decisions. But Ambassador Karju, on the one hand, you are saying that Pakistanis have propped up the Taliban to a great extent. They are controlling the Taliban to a great extent for their own national security interests. If that is the case, doesn't it make sense for a country like India who then go, should go out and wean the Taliban away from Pakistan and try and have negotiations or dealings with the Taliban, however um, unholy that might sound? Look, uh, the nature of the diplomatic game happy is a little different from academic analysis. What have I said? That maintain links? You haven't said what, what kind of links? No, maintain links, you talk to them. I don't need to go into details. All countries know how to maintain links. There are specific agencies and arms of government that maintain links. They are in the business of maintaining such links. But recognizing them, conferring legitimacy on them, that's a different thing altogether. And these are important elements in the diplomatic game as it's played. Now, either we can play a puritanical game about no, no who question. is holy and who is unholy, no, no, of course or not. look after strategic interests. I say, how is our strategic interest better served by chumming up with the Taliban? By weaning it away from Pakistan? You can't do that. That's an impossible, geographical impossibility. The Taliban want a hinterland. So even for the sake of argument to proceed on your line, if you want to do it, you can't. You can't be a substitute to Pakistan. You can't give them what the Pakistanis are, are giving them. That is a geographical impossibility. It is the Indian political system will never accept such a thing and rightly. So the, the maximum you can do is maintain links 
the question of Chinese involvement in the region. China has excellent relations with Afghanistan, with Pakistan. Now, now they are increasingly engaged in a conversation with the Taliban. But they've um, always had very good relations with the Taliban. But it is increasing now. Um, they are, for example, um, I mean, with, with all yes, the development been, projects. Uh, I think they've been hosting some kind of dialogue to, right. uh, trying to host some dialogue, right. etc. I agree. Mm. But how should we view that from the, from the Indian national security point of view? Uh, because this is a new, new development. I mean, this was not the case in the 1990s. For example, not soon after 2001, for example, China has now emerged as a major power in the region and uh, it, is, it is increasingly um, interested in dealing with conflicts in the region, including the Afghan conflict. How should the Indian government or Indian strategic thinkers view this development? I think we should take it in our stride. There are limitations to what China can do uh, in Afghanistan. For instance, I do not see the Chinese ever sending uh, or putting boots on the ground in Afghanistan like the Americans or NATO has. Right. The Chinese involvement and assistance to Afghanistan has also been limited. The Chinese interests in Afghanistan seem to me to be two. One is related to Uyghurs. The second is that the region shouldn't really blow, uh, that that region shouldn't blow up. And aligned with this is their long-term interest that once Afghanistan stabilizes, then the natural resources of Afghanistan should also be available to China. Right. China's involvement is certainly increasing. Their interest is increasing. And we shouldn't be unnecessarily alarmed about I, for one, don't seem, I, I for one, am not alarmed. Well, it's ultimately the Afghans will play the game and the Afghans know the importance of India. Right. In fact, you wrote recently uh, that uh, Pakistan holds the key to the stabilization process in Afghanistan. It's this, the time has come for China to influence its all-weather friend to change course as it proceeds with the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, which is critical part of the Belton Road Initiative, it will be in its interest to do so. So are you then saying that uh, China probably can persuade or even push Pakistan to stop um, uh, what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan or to sort of uh, shape um, or reduce the pressure? Um, Chinese in Afghanistan? leverages on Pakistan are many and they are growing. But the Chinese will not use their leverage, at least in the past, they never have, to the extent they can, to persuade Pakistan to take it easy in Afghanistan. Right. There's been an interesting development that uh, I think uh, during Mr. Modi's and uh, conversations with uh, President Xi in Wuhan, where he, where they agreed that India and Afghan, India and China will do a joint project too. Right. Yeah. I think uh, in Afghanistan, I think that too was a clear signal to Pakistan from the Chinese that look, India too has interests there, and you can't wish India away. So that's an encouraging signal, but uh, I don't think that uh, that would lead me to believe that the Chinese will really push the Pakistan. And this thing that you've quoted, 
I think was to, was in a was expressing a view that actually they should, but would they? Ambassador Kadju, what are India's interests in Afghanistan? I'm asking this from a from a slightly different angle. India has been quiet, um, especially when there are there are groups of states that are negotiating with Taliban or negotiating on Afghanistan, be it the Mari process, be it the uh, quadrilateral uh, coordination group processes. Um, um, India has been sort of um, sitting aloof and uh, observing things rather than actively participating in any of these negotiations. Um, if we think our stakes are really high in Afghanistan, should we not be more involved um, in what is happening in Afghanistan? Look, uh, all these processes are really meant to get the uh, Taliban to the negotiating table. Right. We don't have influence over the Taliban. So what will our presence do in these groups. But do, don't we have direct interest, stakes in Afghanistan? No, you may have stakes or interest in Afghanistan, but the purpose of this, these multilateral negotiations is different. Our stakes and our security, our economic interests in Afghanistan are obvious. One doesn't have to go into these. But they are not served by taking part in these negotiations. They are served in the manner I think that we've largely done over the last uh, what a, a decade and a half of maintaining excellent relations with the authorities in Kabul, of assisting the Afghan people as best as we can in a manner that they want. What has that led to? Uh, that has led to an increased Indian presence. That has led to a greater understanding of what India stands for and in time to come when if as and when Afghanistan settles down that well may be well in the future uh, it will lead us to a situation it will lead to a situation where we have certain foundations there also it has led us it has enabled the Afghan government to resist Pakistani pressures with regard to Afghanistan's India policy. That India is India is also very reluctant in giving military support to Afghanistan. Um, we give them we've given them some helicopters and some military training, but more than that, is it not possible for India to give India has a major defense industrial base, give more weaponry, give more military support to Afghanistan? Is is that not in India's interest? Two points here. I do believe that, uh, especially after the India-Afghanistan strategic partnership, that we should have no reluctance in meeting Afghan uh, security requirements without putting boots on the ground. I think that, to my mind, is a no-no. So, uh, if the Afghans want certain military kinds of military assistance and we are in a position to give it, we should. But you talked of a vast industrial base uh, for defense. I don't think that industrial base is large enough even to meet our own requirements. And that is why the government's present uh, policies of devoting more attention to the defense industry. So the idea that we have vast uh, armaments to give 
I think is misplaced. We can give, we can supply to the extent we can and they want it. We should proceed. But India should not put boots on the ground. Why? I think it will be counterproductive to our interests. Inimical forces will, will uh, use the presence of, of our, uh, our people uh, to spread to create, uh, to spread stories and to create a situation which would not be in our interest. What is the future of India's land access to or India's access to Afghanistan? The Pakistanis are unwilling to give land access to um, Afghanistan via its territory. Um, the, with the pressure on India from the United States of America vis-a-vis uh, -vis India's relations with um, Iran, it's going to be increasingly difficult for India in the future to access Iran, sorry, Afghanistan via Iran. So. That sort of leaves us in, in a very precarious situation, doesn't it? We've handled this situation in the past. But Trump is a different commodity altogether. The lack of access. As far as Chabahar is concerned, I think a certain infrastructure is already in place. And uh, that infrastructure, I do believe, it's in the realm of possibility. It won't be easy, but it'll be in the realm of possibility to increase it to a certain extent and then start using that route uh, more frequently. Ambassador Karju, pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.